regular door creaker or if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We love to make new friends at Door Creek, so this is your first time. Please take a moment to fill out that communication card. We'd love to get to know you, send you just a little word about the church and how to connect here. And we know sometimes people make New Year's resolutions. I'm going to start going back to church. That's a great thing to do. If that's you, we're glad you're here. Welcome. So 2016, it's over. How was it? Was it a good year? Yeah, some people are just feeling a lot of gratitude for this past year and what God has done in their lives. But others aren't, right? Some are like, whew, I am so relieved that is over. Because it was a tough year, right? So wherever you find yourself this past year, you can't help but feel a little anticipation about the year to come, right? A fresh start, the hope of a year full of possibilities and what could come. Have you started making resolutions? Are you guys resolution makers? Anybody? Anybody here? Yeah, some mixed feelings on that. Well, I did something fun. I went to the internet and I googled New Year's resolutions. And I found Nielsen Marketing Group, they pull Americans every year to find out what their top 10 resolutions are. And I thought I'd share the top three with you. You think you could guess what they are? <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. All right, well, let's look at them. Number three, here's number three. Number three was enjoy life to the fullest. That's a nice one, isn't it? I was like, oh, I want that to be mine. I want to do that. That's a great one. Can you guess number two? Lose weight. Yeah, that's not hard to understand after eating our way through the holidays, right? It's like, i got to drop these pounds. All right, number one. I think you know what it is. Number one is stay fit or healthy. Now, a lot of times we think about that physically, but, you know, that could be emotionally, right, or relationally, spiritually. It's a great thing to have a spiritual growth plan. It would be spiritually healthy. Now, i got to share one more with you. It's actually my favorite. It was number seven on the list, and it was make no more resolutions. <laughs> yeah, that's for you contrarians who just hate resolutions. So we have mixed feelings about resolutions, mostly because we don't tend to stick with them. But the reality is wise people make plans. It's good to make plans for the future. In fact, a wise planner will always plan with the end in mind. Because all of us are here, and we're wanting to get there, and it's important to know where there is. What is the goal? What's the target? Where do I want to end up? So whether I'm choosing a school, or maybe starting a new business, or maybe choosing to grow my relationship with Christ, we have to ask ourselves, What's the end result that I want to happen? You know, the Bible talks a lot about the end. In fact, there are large passages of Scripture, even whole books, dedicated to answering the question, what happens at the end of time, the end of God's redemptive history? What does that look like? Scripture is very clear about that. Um, there's universal beliefs outside the Bible. It seems like every people, culture, religion has some idea of an afterlife or what comes next. So as Christ followers, we tend to refer to the ultimate end as heaven, that place where those that are following Christ will end up and will be. Have you ever wondered what heaven is like? If someone sat you down and asked you the question, okay, explain to me what heaven's like, go. Do you feel like you could do that? Does it even matter? I mean, should the idea of heaven even impact our lives? So really important questions. And the Bible's really clear what the answer to that should be. The answer is yes. A clear 
consistent view of heaven is very important. Because the truth is, there are a lot of misconceptions about what heaven is, right? Like some people think that heaven is like people sitting on clouds and playing a harp. Where, <laughs> where did that one come from? <laughs> or some people think heaven is facing a very dark and scary God. Or that we just dissolve into the nothingness of creation. Um, and then some people think heaven's kind of like one long, boring church service where some guy's up there <laughs> preaching about resolutions. Um, and those are misconceptions, and that's a problem. Because when you think that about heaven, you have a tendency to not want to go there. You start thinking, you know, I'd rather stay here and experience life rather than Jesus come back. But hey, I still have to get married. I haven't even experienced a honeymoon yet. I want to do that. Or I haven't been to the Caribbean, that cruise thing. I want to experience the beaches and warm water. Or I worked all my life. I want to, I want to retire. And if you have a wrong view of heaven, you actually find yourself not wanting to go there. And that's not what God intended. Scripture is very clear that heaven should be like a homecoming to those that are following Christ. It should be like going home. Anybody here ever been away from home for a long time? How many here ever deployed with the military? Yeah, several of you. Or maybe you travel for your business, for work, and you have to be away from home. Maybe you just did a mission trip for a long period of time. Or you went on vacation and spent a few days with your in-laws. You're ready to go home, right? <laughs> There's that sense of, oh, I want to be home. That place where I'm comfortable, my own bed where I can relax. My family's there, people who love me, where I belong. There's nothing like home. These last few days, my home has been really special because we've been hosting family for the holidays. I love all my family, but there's one family member who's really special. His name's William Paul. He's my grandson, and he's almost two years old. In fact, I think we have a picture of little William Paul getting ready to come to Wisconsin. He got his gloves on, his hat. He's ready for the cold. He lives in Oklahoma. He's so awesome. I love Will. It's just to hear him say, Papa. You know, and play and jump on the pillows on the floor or fall asleep in my arms. I mean, having kids is awesome. Don't get me wrong. But it ain't nothing like grandkids, let me tell you. They're so cool. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I think we have another picture of his poppy face. That's his poppy face. It's your granny poppy. So you take all those wonderful experiences of home, right, and family. And they're just a small glimpse of what God's love and heaven will be like. Multiply it by a billion, and you just begin to get a glimpse of how wonderful heaven is. And when you begin to understand heaven like that, you have this sense of longing and desire to be there, which is what God intended. So having a right view of heaven is important because it gives us a right view on earth, and having a right view is important for making plans on how we live our life. So it's my prayer that you'll see in the truth of Scripture today, this basic truth, that when heaven is our home, and we can embrace that, there's no pain too powerful, no temptation too tough, that we can't live our lives to please the Lord. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and chapter 7, and we're going to look at eight verses, where God gives us just a glimpse into what heaven is like. And pray it will encourage your hearts. And as you turn there, whether you, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back on tables. 
You're welcome to take one. If you don't have one, take it home. You can have it. As we look at this passage, you need to know a couple things about Revelation. One, you need to know that it was written by the half-brother of Jesus. His name was John. And he wrote it during a very important period in the life of Christian history. It was a time of great and intense persecution. The Roman emperor at the time was tearing up the Christians, killing them. In fact, the apostle Peter was killed during this persecution. He was crucified. Um, The apostle John was also killed. It said that he was boiled in oil. I mean, it was bad and intense. And so God led John to write this book to encourage believers to remain faithful. He wrote it to them, and he wrote it to us. The other thing you need to know about Revelation is that it's written in a particular style of writing we call apocalyptic. Apocalyptic style. It's kind of a hard word, but it simply means to reveal. It's written in very symbolic, picturesque language in order to convey a truth from God about the future. And it's always important when you're reading Revelation, apocalyptic literature, that you use other scripture to interpret it. We're going to do some of that. All right, so turn with me. Chapter 7, Revelation, beginning in verse 9. Let's read it. So after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them, nor scorch, nor the scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture of heaven, God's people in the very presence of the Lord. That should encourage us. Let's dive into this picture of heaven and see what we can learn about it. First, it tells us that there was a great multitude that no one could count. That's important. Because throughout Scripture, God promises that he will gather a people to himself, God's family. In fact, we just finished a study in the book of Genesis, a message series about Abraham and Sarah. And God made an important promise to them that their descendants... God's people would be as large as the stars are in the heaven, or as the number as, as to the sand on the seashore of a beach. Unlimited, huge number. And here in this passage, we're told that God fulfills that promise. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging to know that there would be that many brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven? 
All those who've gone before us, who live now and will go in the future, who trust Christ will be present in heaven. That's an incredible promise. You know, we hear at funerals often that when a believer closes their eyes in death in this life, that they open their eyes in the presence of God in heaven. And that is a spiritual truth that God gives us. Those who die in Christ will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's not just wishy-washy encouragement stuff we say at funerals. No, that is a spiritual truth. It's from Scripture. It's from God. We can count on it. We can hope in it. We can live for it. Heaven is real. And that changes everything. And that should change our perspective on life. Well, it goes on to say, this multitude was made up of every nation, tribe, people, and language. It was God's way of saying all the ways he created people and the creativity, their differences, their uniquenesses will all be present in heaven. And they'll all be united under one thing, under the Lamb who's Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. You know, here at Door Creek, part of our mission statement is that we would be a Christ-centered church for all people. And it comes out of this idea of the heart of God that no matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is, where you were born, the color of your skin, the language you speak, that this is a place we can all come together and be one and united around the person of Jesus Christ. We want to be that kind of church where we see the way things are in heaven actually come here on earth and live out the heart of God to be a church where all are welcome and come together. We also learn these people are wearing white robes. Very simple but profound symbol. This idea of white robes. Throughout Scripture, we hear it referenced. Um, Moses in Exodus 19.14, when he received the Ten Commandments from God and he was going to present them to God's people, he told them, Hey, everybody, wash your robes, purify yourselves to prepare to receive the commandments of God. It was a way of preparing or being acceptable to God. The prophet Isaiah foretelling about the leader who would come and repair the relationship between God and man. He said that that person will wash our scarlet sins white as snow. So there's this idea of being cleansed or washed to become acceptable to God. So you might ask, well, what are you being washed from? You know, what, what's the problem? Why are we dirty? That's important. It's a great question. Because Scripture teaches us that all of us have a problem. And that problem can de- be defined in one word, and it is this, sin. Ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden exercised their will to disobey God, we were separated from God. Sin entered the world And our relationship was broken with him. And now everyone born into the world is born with sin. Even my little grandbaby, who's learned to say no, and he says it very well, (laughs) this willful disobedience to go our own way instead of God's. Sin. And sin is a problem because sin is what separates us from God. And the whole good news of Scripture and even The good news of this passage is that there was a remedy made on our behalf for our sin. And that brings us to really the whole focal point of this passage. And it is the lamb. The lamb. The lamb is referenced in verse 9, verse 10, verse 14, and 17. And who is the lamb? Somebody give me the the answer. Jesus, right? Jesus is the lamb. That's always the right answer, by the way. Um, 
Jesus is the lamb. We're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we see the story of John the Baptist, the one who preached and prepared the way for Christ. As Jesus approached John the Baptist, as he's preaching and baptizing, John sees him and he points and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. We also see in Isaiah 53, 7, where that special ruler, that anointed leader, that Messiah that God would send, that he would be led away like a lamb to the slaughter. He would become a sacrifice for us. See, in verse 14, we're told that those who are in heaven, they have been washed by the blood of the lamb. Washed by the blood of the lamb. That's symbolic language, and it's referring to what Christ did for us on the cross, that he died on our behalf. In the Old Testament, we learn that the way people stayed right with God is that every time they sinned, they had to kill an animal, a lamb, and shed its blood to cover their sin, to tell God, I'm sorry, and be restored to that relationship. Every time they sinned, they had to make a sacrifice. And so Jesus is symbolically has become that ultimate, once and for all sacrifice who died on our behalf to cover all of our sin. So we don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.24, says it like this. He, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus paid our debt. He covered our sin. He removed it. He washes us so we can now have a relationship with God. If you're new to the faith, um, this all might be really weird to you. (laughs) This idea of robes and lambs and blood and sacrifices. You're like, this has all the makings of a cult. What's going on here? Uh, It's not a cult. But remember, this is apocalyptic writings. It's symbolic. And you have to define these symbols. And they're powerful ones. And they have a history. It's one of the reasons we're continually encouraging followers of Christ to study God's word. Be in it. Get it in you. The more you know about the Old Testament, the more you understand the New Testament. The more you read the first few books of the Bible, the better you understand the last book of the Bible. It all fits together in a story. So if you're new to this, what you need to know is that God loves you. He created a special place called heaven for you. He wants you to be there. In fact, he bought your ticket. He sent Jesus Christ to pay the price for your ticket. And so now, through trusting in Christ, you can be in heaven. And that's our prayer for you. If you've never made the decision to follow Christ, to make heaven your home, we pray you would do that, even today, for the first time. So God loved us enough to send Christ, the Lamb. The Lamb is the focal point of this passage. In fact, we see the multitude in the presence of God. They've come all the way through redemptive history, all the way through God's creating and creation and and the garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and their sin are cast out and God pursues us and the prophets and the coming of Christ all this history has occurred Christ has returned and taken his people home and here we are standing with a picture of what's going to happen next and what happens is the people of God burst forth in praise and worship saying praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to God And we come to realize that really is what it's all about, is bringing glory to God, worshiping Him. 
we actually come to realize that that's the purpose of my life. It's why I was created, to bring glory and honor to this magnificent creator who's given me life. And we will fulfill that ultimately in heaven when we worship and praise him. This brings us to one of two key principles that just jump out at me from this passage. The first one is this. Heaven brings precision to our priorities as we learn to live for God's glory and not mine. See, Jesus told us that we should store up treasures in heaven rather than earth. It's all about eternity and what comes after this life. John Piper, who wrote a book called God is the Gospel, has a great quote about God's glory. He says, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we've not been converted by the gospel. So when we keep our eyes on the gospel and what Christ did for us and understand it's about God's glory and keep that as our focus, then we begin to have this understanding of what our lives are really all about. And it actually shapes and impacts everything, including my plans and how I live my life. The Apostle Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So as we make our plans for the new year, we would be wise to allow this view of heaven and God's glory to shape what we plan as you consider a new job or what school you'll attend or starting a new business, whatever it might be, ask the question, will this bring glory to God? Will this allow me to reflect the goodness and greatness of God to those around me? It's a wise step in decision-making. All right, well, let's continue. In verse 13, we learn who are these redeemed people? Actually, the question is asked by one of the elders. Who are these people? It's a great question. And it begs the next question, like, how do you actually get to heaven? Who goes there? What's the way in? And we're told in Luke 10, 25, during Jesus' day, people were asking him the same question. A rich young ruler asked, how is it that I can e inherit eternal life? Actually, everybody in the world asked that question. What comes next? And how can I take care of what comes next? How can I know God? How can I be in heaven? So what is the answer? Well, we've actually read it. The answer is those who've wa been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Remember, again, the blood stands for Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, and through trusting in him, we receive forgiveness of sins. Now, the Bible's real clear about how not to get into heaven. We, we don't find in here that we get to heaven by doing a bunch of good things. And if you do more good works than bad things, you'll get into heaven. That's not what it says. The Bible doesn't say that we get into heaven by committing heroic acts. If I save somebody's life, you know, if I serve people enough. No, that's not it either. It's not going to church or reading your Bible. It's none of those things. Scripture's really, really clear that Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is our only hope of heaven. It's not based on what I do. It's based on what Christ has already done. And how we simply are called to put our trust in Christ to receive forgiveness and be reunited with God, our creator, the lover of our souls. And I know for some that's a basic idea. You've heard it before. Others, 
You may be hearing this for the first time. This is revolutionary. It's really that simple. It's not based on how many times you go to church, what you do in your life. Or in your, it's based on what you do with Jesus Christ, putting your trust in him. And he loves you, and he's inviting you, welcoming you to a relationship, and ultimately to put your home in heaven. So as we move into verses 15, 16, and 17, we actually see the reward for those that trust Christ, for those that will enter heaven. A whole list of amazing things. The first one is this. We'll be before the throne. We'll serve God day and night. God spreads his tent over us. What does that mean? Well, tent in the Old Testament refers to God's presence. God commanded his people to create a tent. It was like a special uh, church, if you will, or a tabernacle, and it's where God dwelled. It represented God's presence with his people. And it says that a pillar of smoke appeared over the tent by day and fire by night. And people would see it and go, oh, God's with us. Okay, we can make it through the wilderness. And so God uses that imagery to say in heaven, God's tent surrounds us. That's a big deal. Because you understand, as we read through the scripture, we're taught that no one can be in the presence of God and live. In fact, Moses told the people of Israel, hey, don't touch that mountain, because that's where God dwells. It's where he gave me the Ten Commandments. Don't touch it. And people touched it, and they died. Just touching the mountain where God was. We also learn that when God told uh, them to create this tent, he said, make a special place for me, a throne. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where I'm going to sit. And I'll sit in that tent, and I'll be. And he said, but don't touch the ark because it's holy. And as they were transporting it from one place to another, somebody reached out their hand to steady it. They died instantly. And so this idea that we could be in the very presence of God, this is unbelievable. That we can see God face to face and not be afraid and not die, but experience joy in his love. It's amazing. It's probably the best gift we could possibly get in heaven to be in God's presence. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say, we receive freedom from poverty and pain and emptiness. There'll be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more dangers like scorching heat. The lamb will be our shepherd and lead us to springs of living water. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. No suffering, no trouble. Reminds me of Jesus' sermon on the mount where he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. Completely filled, not wanting or desiring a thing. Remember the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well, where Jesus told her that he would give her water, that if she drank it, she would never thirst again, and springs of water would well up inside of her, and she would be satisfied completely. For those that are in the presence of God in heaven, that's what we experience. Can you imagine? Never feeling like you don't fit in, or you're not welcome, or you're not loved. Knowing your purpose in life, being completely satisfied. No more insecurities, no more temptations to sin. It's gone. And the presence of God fully satisfied. Phenomenal. This brings us to the second truth that I see in this passage, and it's this. That heaven builds toughness against trials and temptations when we learn to thrive on God's joy and not the world's. You see, in heaven, we don't have to struggle anymore. But on earth, we do. And that's why God led John to write this book, to encourage Christians to hang in there. Don't give up. Keep going. 
Because there's something wonderful coming again. Jesus told his disciples before he left, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. We need that encouragement. We need that strength. We need that joy. Because all of us know life is not a smooth highway. It's full of ups and downs and curves and switchbacks. And we have to remember that God isn't just at the destination, at the end. He's actually with us on the journey. Actually, he's the one planning the journey and some of those curves. So that we have to go to him who is the map maker for direction and guidance and strength and encouragement and help. It's found in God and through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we can be fully satisfied in God, we have this joy that gives us strength. And that's actually the secret. Nehemiah tells us, Nehemiah 10.8, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And when we can be fully satisfied in God, we have this joy that gives us a strength. And strength leads to endurance through difficulties and temptations and trials. And that endurance leads to perseverance. And we can be obedient to God, and obedience leads to rewards in heaven. And it comes and begins with the joy that comes through knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I mentioned earlier that Jesus shared something very important to His disciples before He left. So if you read in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 14, you see Jesus coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He's about to be arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. He has one more shot at sharing with the disciples and pouring into them his truth. And he shared something very important with them in John 14. Remember, the last thing he's going to tell them, he knows that they're going to endure great difficulty. In fact, he says, you're going to have a harder time than I am. In fact, they did. They were tortured. As they tried to build the early church, it was hard. So what do you think Jesus told them to sustain them in that time? John 14, 2, he says, Hey, don't be afraid. I'm going to prepare a place for you, heaven. And if I do that, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you and take you with me. Jesus knew how important it would be for us to have a clear concise, strong view that there is a heaven and a special place where he will take us. It's important for us to be clear about heaven so that we can make it through the difficulties of this life. Isn't it amazing how much God loves us, pursued us through all this history, sending of his son, creating a special place for us so he could gather us together and share his love as one big happy family. It's amazing for us. We didn't deserve it, but he did that for us. How much he loves us. So as we stand at the beginning of a new year, let's begin with the end in mind. Let's keep heaven in perspective because the truth of the matter is heaven is our home and we're going to go there in a very short while. So let's live our lives like it. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you loved us enough to pursue us and not give up and not set us aside, but you sent your son, your very self, to pay the price for our sins so we can know you again. Thank you for creating heaven. Thank you for your word, which makes it so clear to us where it is, how to get there, and that one day we'll enjoy it with you. And Father, we pray that truth would encourage our hearts and sustain us in the difficult times we experience now 
and in the days ahead. Fill our hearts with joy, knowing your love and our future. And may it sustain us to be faithful to the very end. For your glory and praise, we ask in Christ's name.